3: There have been 173 documented exonerations from death row in the United States since the death penalty came back in 1972. There have been 1,530 executions, 173 exonerations. That is one exoneration for every nine executions. If planes crashed with that frequency, we'd be doing something about it. But for the death penalty, we have it. I think it's time that we look at the facts, we look at our souls, and we decide, is this something that we can trust the government to carry out, and to carry out fairly?
2: Welcome to Red Flags, the podcast where we zoom in on the big cases and zoom out on the bigger issues around them. I'm Karina Michelle, and I run the true crime TikTok page at daily true crime minisodes. And I'm Tori Telfer, a true crime author, and my book, Confident Women, is out February 23rd. The Trump administration has carried out 10 federal executions since July, an unprecedented number, even going ahead with three of those executions during a presidential lame duck period, which hasn't happened in 130 years. There are three more executions scheduled for this week, but as of this recording, they are caught in a flurry of appeals and denials, and it's unclear which of them will proceed. We wanted to take a closer look at the topic of the death penalty, specifically in the case of Dustin Higgs, who was originally scheduled to be executed on January 15th. We spoke to Sean Nolan, a lawyer on Higgs' legal team, who's working tirelessly for clemency. And for a broader perspective, We also spoke to Robert Dunham, the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, an expert on this topic. Tori, are
4: you familiar with this one? I am familiar with Dustin Higgs' current situation, but I do not actually know anything about what got him into this situation. So I'm excited to hear about it.
2: On January 27th, 1996, Dustin Higgs, alongside Victor Gloria and Willis Haynes, drove from Maryland to Washington to pick up 19-year-old Tamika Black, 23-year-old Michon Chin, and 21-year-old Tanji Jackson. The group then drove back to Mr. Higgs' apartment in Maryland, and this is where an argument broke out between Higgs and one of the women. Mm. It's still unknown what the argument was about. There is a theory that it was because Higgs was romantically interested in one of the women, but she just didn't feel the same way. Okay. But this has just never been confirmed. The women were under the impression that they would be driven back home to Maryland. But according to an article by Michael Balsamo and Michael Tarm for the Associated Press— they were taken to Route 197, that just happened to be land-owned by the Federal Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Prince George's County. Mm. It was here where, unfortunately, Haynes shot and killed the three women. The medical examiner revealed that Michonne Chin was shot once execution-style, and Tamika Black and Tangi Jackson were shot twice as they ran away from the shooter. Ugh, that is so scary. And this is just in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, just dark wildlife. I, I feel like we're missing
4: some huge piece of information to go from partying at a house to killing three people.
2: hmm So, Tori, the case remained open for three years. Ugh, okay. Higgs was actually questioned when the murder first happened, mm-hmm. and he admitted that he knew Jackson But he was not arrested for this.
4: Okay, so he admitted he knew one of the victims, but that was it.
2: Yes, but it kind of didn't go anywhere. And it wasn't until 2000 when Higgs, Haynes, and Gloria were indicted for the murder. It's important to note that when Higgs was indicted, he was already in prison serving a 17-year sentence for a drug charge. Gloria ended up accepting a plea deal. He told police that he was not involved in the murders and that it was Higgs and Haynes who committed them. Mm -hmm. He entered a plea deal where a part of it was that he would testify against Higgs and say that Higgs forced Haynes to do it and even handed him the handgun. Oh, wow.
4: Okay, so he's put the blame on Haynes and Higgs. Yes. And then what happens with
2: those two? Haynes, who actually pulled the trigger, was sentenced to life without parole plus 45 years. Mm. In 2012, he signed an affidavit where he wrote, Dustin didn't threaten me. I was not scared of him. Dustin didn't make me do anything that night or ever.
4: Oh, so he took full responsibility, sort of, Mm -hmm. for all
2: three of the murders in that affidavit? Yeah. Okay. Gloria and Haynes had both cut deals in exchange for lighter sentences, and the prosecutors used their stories, which reportedly changed over the course of the trial, to push for the death penalty for Higgs. And in addition to Haynes' 2012 affidavit that contradicts the Dustin Made Me Do It story, there are other factors worth considering about this sentence. Okay. One of them is that Dustin Higgs has a learning disability, Mm -hmm. When he was eight years old, his mother was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer, Mm -hmm. and he became primary caretaker. Mm -hmm. So during this time, eight years old, children are kind of learning to read and write and communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. And he suffered a lot of trauma because at the age of 10, he ended up losing his mom. Because of this, he ended up having an emotional development delay. Okay. And this was never presented to the jury, nor was the fact that he was his mother's caretaker, nor the fact that he had a learning disability. Okay.
4: So I have a question, and I don't mean to sound callous. What would his learning disability have changed about the situation of the crime? Like, it seems very tragic to me, but I sort of don't
2: see how it's relevant to the jury. In 2002, the Supreme Court held in Atkins v. Virginia that it would be cruel and unusual punishment to sentence people with intellectual disability to death. Hmm, okay. Another thing that makes this case controversial is between the time that the crime happened and when Dustin was sentenced, the death penalty was eradicated in Maryland.
4: Oh, Okay, but his crime was a federal crime, right? So it's like, yeah, it's not completely applicable to him, but it feels really weird.
2: Yeah, fair to say like it doesn't quite feel
4: right, even though it's not maybe technically applicable to his Mm -hmm. case.
2: The importance of this case is not to take away from the horrific crime that happened. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: It's a conversation of proper punishment.
4: Yeah, absolutely. After having you walk me through the case, I feel a little bit differently than I did coming into this. Like, I was feeling very angry at Dustin Higgs' sentencing and the fact mm-hmm. that he is, you know, as of when we're recording this, scheduled to be executed in a week or so. And now that you've walked me through it, I haven't changed my mind about that. I didn't realize the crime was so horrible. Like, it's yeah. so it's so haunting. Like, these three women just at the start of adulthood driven to this desolate federal wildlife preserve and the way they were killed, like the two of them running after they saw their friend be shot. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. so horrifying. That being said, Dustin Higgs was not the gunman. He didn't Mm -hmm. kill anyone. It I mean, I know I just said this, but I guess I'll say it again. Like, it's just the way the sentencing played out here is so inconsistent. These three men got three wildly different sentences that don't have any bearing on the severity of their role in this triple homicide. And I think this is why everyone's feeling a sense of urgency right now about this case, not because the murders were not horrible, not because there shouldn't be justice in this situation, but because he's scheduled to be executed so soon and because his punishment just so obviously doesn't fit the crime, if you look at the details.
2: We were grateful to speak with Sean Nolan, the chief of the Capital Habeas Unit in the Federal Defender Office in Philadelphia, who's leading the case for Dustin Hicks' clemency. This interview was recorded last week, but as you'll hear after... So first, would you be able to give us a high level summary of the case for clemency for Dustin as well as how you got involved?
5: Basically, you know our our request is is twofold. The first is that that the sentence be commuted uh, to life because you know Mr. Mr. Higgs was didn't shoot anybody. He wasn't the shooter in this case. It's very clear everybody agrees that he was not the shooter in this case, that he didn't kill anybody. Mr. Haynes, who killed the three women, is doing life in prison, and so that's that's part of our, our clemency request. Is that um, the other? The second part of it is that he should be entitled to um, at least a reprieve, which would delay the execution. And and one of the reasons for that is is so that the various pieces of litigation can be played out in the court uh, in a normal course rather than in a, in a very fast fashion, which is where they are now. But also because of his a positive covid test he tested positive for covid about two weeks ago or we were informed of it about two weeks ago um, you know he's sick he is um, his lungs are damaged from the covid a person with lung damage uh, as a result of covid there is no question that he will um, he will basically be tortured to death he will be drowned um, and that's that's what our experts testified to. We presented that to the judge on Tuesday, and we're very hopeful that the judge is going to agree with our position um, and grant an injunction to stop this execution.
2: How has COVID had an effect on how you're able to do your job and communicate with Higgs?
5: Well, it's it's obviously created great difficulties. In normal circumstances, we would have spent an enormous amount of time with Mr. Higgs over the past year, and especially uh, during the past you know, several weeks since his execution has been scheduled. You know, it's very dangerous to go into the prison, in a prison in which COVID is just running rampant through that prison right now. And so, you know, our lawyers go to see Mr. Higgs and, and are exposing themselves. And it's been a difficult thing to kind of balance our, you know, our Sixth Amendment duty to our client as his attorney uh, and balance that with our personal health and, and our risks to ourselves. It was crazy enough uh, to me that they were moving forward with these executions, you know, in the summer and, and in recent months with COVID. But this is a game changer at this point, because what happened is they kept doing these executions, which, you know, I've been describing as super spreader events. They bring in people from all over the country to, that are the execution team to handle these executions. There are guards all over the place. And now what happened is two weeks ago, they executed two men within four days of that execution. More than half of the men on the federal death row tested positive for COVID, including my client.
2: And how do you as an attorney, how do you have these type of emotional conversations with your client of keeping him hope, but still pertaining to the seriousness of this conversation? How do you handle that?
5: Well, it's it's probably the most difficult part of, of being an attorney um, doing these cases is, you know, is helping our clients through these incredibly difficult tough situations um and so you know we deal with it the way you deal with anything else it's the reality of death many of us have had to deal with death in our personal lives with family and things like that and it's it's a similar concept but at the same time there's so much litigation going on and so for you know for dustin higgs we have to you know keep him up to date with all of the litigation but then at the same time we also have to deal with the reality that this might happen next friday He's facing that as best he can. He's been spending time with a spiritual advisor and um, and trying to prepare himself while at the same time holding out lots of hope.
2: I think Mr. Hicks' case is such a complicated one because even if you don't add COVID to it, there's such unique circumstances where he's not the person who, who killed these women. He's not the shooter. And also he has a learning disability.
5: Right. I'm glad you mentioned that, the learning disability, but there's also so much more that we presented Mm -hmm. to to the Clemency Board. Um, Dustin grew up in in complete poverty. You know, his father was a drug dealer who beat him regularly. I mean, and the trauma from that, we know what trauma does uh, from child abuse, everybody knows that, right? And and we have experts that talk about that, but the jury didn't hear that because his lawyers didn't present it and, and didn't develop that evidence or investigate that evidence. And then the other thing that we asked the Clemency Board to consider is his record in prison. He's been in, on death row for two decades, and he mm-hmm. is a model prisoner. And during that time in prison, he's been an incredible father to his son as best he can. And that's mm-hmm. that's an incredible testament to his character, the fact that he could maintain that in solitary confinement for two decades, but that he could maintain his dedication to his son to help him. And, you know, and his son talks about that. His son wrote a letter to the president saying, you know, please don't kill my father. He's been an incredible beacon in my life and has helped me get to where I am. You know, all of those things go into this package of why he should not be executed, but especially because, you know, he didn't kill these people.
2: Yeah, I also read that his case is specific because between the time where the crime was committed and, and he was sentenced, the death penalty was abolished in
5: Maryland. That's right. But that also tells you, you know, all right, so he was convicted and sentenced to death in Maryland. Maryland doesn't have the death penalty anymore. So why are you doing this? Why are you moving forward with this, right? What's the point? What is the point of this? And it's also, he's, he's being executed on Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, you know, and that's, just all of it is insane. It's just insane to me that, that the government wants to move forward with this execution next Friday, within five days of the inauguration. It just makes no sense. I mean, our government hasn't done that in more than a century. And now we're doing this. Just
2: before we finished this episode, the news came down that the federal judge had stayed his execution, agreeing that his covid diagnosis made lethal injection into a form of torture.
5: Well, we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, they filed their appeal like within 10 minutes. Well, they haven't filed their brief yet. They just what happens is you file a notice of appeal and then you get a briefing schedule which will be very quick. Their brief will likely be due tomorrow midday. Things move quickly. Actually, uh, one of our team members was on the phone with him at the time we got the rolling, which was terrific. So she was able to read parts of it to him on the phone and, and give him the good news. So he was very happy, obviously. One of our other team members immediately called his sister and his son. And so uh, they were happy to hear the news. But, you know, when you deliver news like that to a family, you have to be a little bit tempered because they're appealing this. And we've seen 10 executions go forward in the past several months when things similar to this had happened and the U.S. Supreme Court reversed. We feel this is different though. I think this is different. If we were just in the same position that we were over the summer with some of this litigation where we did get stays uh, in the lower court that were later reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court, um, I would be feeling more dire. Um, But the the COVID diagnosis um, and the expert testimony that we presented uh, in support of uh, basically the way that our clients will be executed, I think, is a game changer. So I think COVID does have a big impact on this. And and Judge Chutkin, in her opinion, you know that she just issued, I guess, an hour ago, very clearly said that that the sensation of drowning is akin to waterboarding. And that's what our clients would feel, and certainly that violates the Eighth Amendment. You know, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, we're very happy that Judge Chutkin saw their efforts for what they are. Uh, we think her opinion is really strong. And we think that, uh, that the circuit court will uphold it, and, and we're hopeful that the Supreme Court will uphold it as well, and that they will not be able to move forward with Dustin's execution on Friday.
2: It was so interesting researching this. Like, I am against the death penalty but it made me realize how as a society we just can't agree on what proper punishment is Mm -hmm. and that's one of the biggest issues
4: yeah i think that's a question that the u.s has a very different answer to than a lot of other countries
2: yeah you know
4: this is reminding me of our interview with isaac j bailey in the last episode where he was emphasizing that in the u.s we conflate revenge and punishment yeah and it's like By killing Dustin Higgs, who did not himself kill anyone, is that actual punishment? Is that proper punishment or is that just revenge? Is that Mm -hmm. just like, we are so angry that these three young women died, um, that someone's, you know, someone's got to die for that crime?
2: It seems that timing is everything in death penalty cases especially in the case of Dustin Higgs. I did wonder about the factor of racial bias and wanted to better understand how this plays into the process of convicting and sentencing someone to death. To learn more about the history and legal process of the death penalty, I spoke to Robert Dunham, an expert on this topic.
3: I am the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. Uh, DPIC is a national nonprofit that provides information and analysis on death penalty issues. We don't take a position for or against the death penalty itself, but we have been critical of the way in which it's administered.
2: Death Penalty Info just released their 2020 report. What are some of the findings that you can share? Uh,
3: 2020 was a very strange year, uh, and it was just as strange when it came to capital punishment as it was with everything else. The the findings from 2020 basically show that the year was going to be a continuation of existing trends away from capital punishment. Uh, we saw that with Colorado becoming the 22nd state to abolish a death penalty, uh, the 10th to do so in the last 15 years. Uh, we saw that with Utah and Louisiana uh, reaching 10 years without an execution, bringing to 34 Uh, Two-thirds of all the U.S. states, uh, the number of states that either no longer have a death penalty or haven't carried it out in more than a decade. We had an unprecedented uh, use of the federal death penalty. Really, what we've seen uh, from the federal administration is something unparalleled in modern times. There were 10 executions. That was more federal executions, more federal civilian executions in one year uh, than in any year in the 20th century and in any previous year in the 21st century.
2: Do we know some of the contributing factors as to why there have been such high rates of federal executions?
3: Donald Trump, and that's the only explanation. Um, his, uh, his administration, uh, has been so far out of step, um, with anything we have seen in modern American history. And, uh, when we look at these federal executions themselves, uh, they have been carried out in a manner uh, that is inconsistent with the rule of law. Every other jurisdiction, every state in the United States, understands that it is not safe to carry out executions right now during the midst of this pandemic. Yet uh, the federal administration plunged forward with a record number of executions. Uh, The United States Supreme Court has allowed the executions to go forward, but there have been multiple court rulings that the manner in which the executions are being carried out violates the Federal Death Penalty Act and the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act uh, and also violates the federal regulations. But the administration strategically uh, chose to create an execution schedule that would deny the courts a meaningful opportunity to adjudicate the legal issues in the cases. That's not something that you would see from an administration that cared one whit about the rule of law.
2: Yeah. Another problem that people talk about a lot is racial biases in the death penalty and and people who get served capital punishment. Would you be able to talk more in depth about that?
3: I don't think you can understand the racial discrimination in the U.S. death penalty uh, Mm -hmm. without putting it in historical context. The death penalty is an outgrowth of slavery, lynching, and Jim Crow segregation. Uh, There is no way around that. And we just released a report in September 2020, and that report took an in-depth look at the death penalty across American history uh, and as administered today. Uh, And what we found was from the very beginning, uh, the death penalty treated African Americans differently uh, than it treated whites the death sentence was almost universally imposed on African-Americans. Virginia is, uh, is a great example because we have uh, very strong historical data on that. From 1900 through 1969, not a single white person was sentenced to death and executed uh, for a crime in which the victim was not killed. And during that same period, 73 African-Americans were executed. Uh, and when we look at the numbers today, the discrimination is still clear. You can't take race out of the death penalty. So when we are talking about whether there should be a death penalty, and we're talking about how it should be administered, it is important to understand that this is not a punishment that contributes to public safety. There have been 173 documented exonerations from death row in the United States since the death penalty came back in 1972. There have been 1,500 and 30 executions, 173 exonerations. That is one exoneration for every nine executions. If planes crashed with that frequency, we'd be doing something about it.
4: Karina, before we go, I want to tell our
2: listeners about a six-part docuseries that I know you've started watching. I've really liked it so far. I can tell this is going to be my next binge watch, but it is such a difficult situation to see.
4: This six-part series is on Discovery Plus right now. It's called Killing Richard Glossop, and it's by Joe Berlinger, who's done a lot in the true crime space, a lot of documentaries. And he also did the Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, that we talked about a couple episodes ago. This is my recommendation for you if this episode has gotten you intrigued about... The idea that there are people on death row who maybe don't deserve to be on death row, whether that's because their crime, you know, the punishment doesn't fit the crime or because they are innocent altogether. So the case of Richard Glossop is a weird one. On January 7th, 1997, there are three men who work at this Best Budget Inn in Oklahoma. OK, so one of them, Barry Van Treese is the owner and on that date, Justin Sneed, who was the maintenance man, beat Barry Van Treese to death using a baseball bat. Justin Sneed is arrested, and in exchange for uh, not getting the death penalty, he pins the whole thing on Richard Glossop, who's the best budget in. Richard Glossop is con- tried, convicted, given the death penalty put on death row. Four years later, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals throws out his conviction and says that the case against him is really weak. And then three years after that, he has another trial. He's convicted of the murder again and sentenced to death again. Um, So this is one of those cases that's sort of been bouncing around in the legal system for quite some time, obviously with a huge stakes on the table. And there's a lot of fishy stuff like Justin Sneed, who admits that he did the murder. He was possibly on meth at the time. Um, he was a petty criminal already. And his family apparently thinks that he is lying. So, anyway, the documentary gets far more into all of that than what I'm telling you now. But the part that I'm most excited about is that this documentary has unprecedented access to both Richard Glossop, who has been claiming he's innocent for over two decades, and Justin Sneed, who admits that he did the actual killing with the baseball bat but says that Richard told him to do it. So there's access to both of them in the docuseries, and it's definitely one of those, like, mind-blowingly complicated binge watches. So again, it's called Killing Richard Glossop, and you can find it on Discovery Plus.
2: We would like to give a special thanks to Sean Nolan and Robert Dunham for their interviews this week. And if you want to spark a conversation here at Red Flags, make sure to call our hotline 188-9REDFLA. That's 188-973-3352. For more true crime conversations, be sure to check out ID on Twitter at Discovery ID or on Instagram and TikTok at Investigation Discovery. And you can ask us questions on our own Instagram feeds
4: too. I am at Tori underscore underscore Telfer. And I am at the
2: Karina Michelle.
4: Thanks for listening today. Red Flags is a production of Investigation Discovery and Audiation. For ID, our executive producers are Amy Angelowitz, Jessica Lowther, and Marissa Lucy.
2: For Audiation, our executive producers are Sandy Smollins and Michael Wolfson.
4: Mark Lotto is our story editor. Ireland Meacham is our producer. And Brad Stratton is our editor-mixer.
2: Theme music by Marty Beller. Audiation.